0: Section 14 of A Theological-Political Treatise by Baruch Benedict de Spinoza. Translated by Robert Harvey Monroe Elvis. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read for you by Chiquito Crasto. Chapter 13 It is shown that Scripture teaches only very simple doctrines, such as suffice for right conduct, In the second chapter of this treatise we pointed out that the prophets were gifted with extraordinary powers of imagination but not of understanding, also that God only revealed to them such things as are very simple, not philosophical mysteries, and that He adapted His communications to their previous opinions. We further showed in chapter 5 that Scripture only transmits and teaches truths which can readily be comprehended by all not deducing and concatenating its conclusions from definitions and axioms but narrating quite simply and confirming its statements with a view to inspiring belief by an appeal to experience as exemplified in miracles and history and setting forth its truth in the style and phraseology which would most appeal to the popular mind refer chapter six third division lastly we demonstrated in chapter seven That the difficulty of understanding scripture lies in the language only and not in the abstruseness of the argument to these considerations we may add that the prophets did not preach only to the learned but to all jews without exception while the apostles were wont to teach the gospel doctrine in churches where there were public meetings whence it follows that scriptural doctrine contains no lofty speculations nor philosophic reasoning but only very simple matters such as could be understood by the slowest intelligence. I am consequently lost in wonder at the ingenuity of those whom I have already mentioned who detect in the Bible mysteries so profound that they cannot be explained in human language and who have introduced so many philosophic speculations into religion that the church seems like an academy and religion like a science or rather a dispute. It is not to be wondered at that men who boast of possessing supernatural intelligence, should be unwilling to yield the palm of knowledge to philosophers who have only their ordinary faculties. Still, I should be surprised if I found them teaching any new speculative doctrine, which was not a commonplace to those gentile philosophers whom, in spite of all, they stigmatize as blind. For, if one inquire what these mysteries lurking in scripture may be, One is confronted with nothing but the reflections of Plato or Aristotle or the like, which it would often be easier for an ignorant man to dream than for the most accomplished scholar to wrest out of the Bible. However, I do not wish to affirm absolutely that Scripture contains no doctrines in the sphere of philosophy, for in the last chapter I pointed out some of the kind as fundamental principles. But I go so far as to say that such doctrines are very few and very simple. Their precise nature and definition, I will now set forth. The task will be easy, for we know that Scripture does not aim at imparting scientific knowledge, and therefore it demands from men nothing but obedience and censures obstinacy, but not ignorance. Furthermore, as obedience to God consists solely in love to our neighbour, for whosoever loveth his neighbour as a means of obeying God, hath, as St. Paul says, Romans chapter 13, verse 8, fulfilled the law it follows that no knowledge is commended in the bible save that which is necessary for enabling all men to obey god in the manner stated and without which they would become rebellious or without the discipline of obedience other speculative questions which have no direct bearing on the object or are concerned with the knowledge of natural events do not affect scripture and should be entirely separated from religion now though every one as we have said is now quite able to see this truth for himself i should nevertheless wish considering that the whole of religion depends thereon to explain the entire question more accurately and clearly to this end i must first prove that the intellectual or accurate knowledge of god is not a gift bestowed upon all good men like obedience and further that the knowledge of God required by him through his prophets, from every one without exception, as needful to be known, is simply a knowledge of his divine justice and charity. Both these points are easily proved from Scripture. The first plainly follows from Exodus chapter six, verse two, where God, in order to show the singular grace bestowed upon Moses, says to him, And I appeared unto Abraham, unto Isaac, and unto Jacob by the name of El Sedai, a. v. God Almighty. But by my name Jehovah was I not known to them, for the better understanding of which passage I may remark that El Shaddai in Hebrew signifies the God who suffices in that He gives to every man that which suffices for Him. And although Shaddai is often used by itself to signify God, we cannot doubt that the word El, God, is everywhere understood. Furthermore, we must note that Jehovah is the only word found in Scripture with the meaning of the absolute essence of God without reference to created things. The Jews maintain for this reason that this is, strictly speaking, the only name of God, that the rest of the words used are merely titles, and in truth the other names of God, whether they be substantives or adjectives, are merely attributive and belong to Him in so far as He is conceived of in relation to created things or manifested through them. Thus El or Eloah signifies powerful, as is well known and only applies to god in respect to his supremacy as when we call paul an apostle the faculties of his power are set forth in an accompanying adjective as l great awful just merciful etc or else all are understood at once by the use of l in the plural number with a singular signification an expression frequently adopted in scripture now as god tells moses that he was not known to the patriarchs by the name of jehovah It follows that they were not cognizant of any attribute of God which expresses his absolute essence, but only of his deeds and promises, that is, of his power as manifested in visible things. God does not speak to Moses in order to accuse the patriarchs of infidelity, but on the contrary, as a means of extolling their belief in faith, inasmuch as, though they possessed no extraordinary knowledge of God, such as Moses had, they yet accepted his promises as fixed and certain whereas moses though his thoughts about god were more exalted nevertheless doubted about the divine promises and complained to god that instead of the promised deliverance the prospects of the israelites had darkened as the patriarchs did not know the distinctive name of god and as god mentions the fact to moses in praise of their faith and single-heartedness and in contrast to the extraordinary grace granted to moses it follows as we stated at first that men are not bound by decree to have knowledge of the attributes of God, such knowledge being only granted to a few of the faithful. It is hardly worth while to quote further examples from Scripture, for every one must recognize that knowledge of God is not equal among all good men. Moreover, a man cannot be ordered to be wise any more than he can be ordered to live and exist. Men, women, and children are all alike, able to obey by commandment, but not to be wise if any tell us that it is not necessary to understand the divine attributes but that we must believe them simply without proof he is plainly trifling for what is invisible and can only be perceived by the mind cannot be apprehended by any other means than proofs if these are absent the object remains ungrasped the repetition of what has been heard on such subjects no more indicates or attains to their meaning than the words of a parrot or a puppet speaking without sense or signification before i proceed i ought to explain how it comes that we are often told in genesis that the patriarchs preached in the name of jehovah this being in plain contradiction to the text above quoted a reference to what was said in chapter eight will readily explain the difficulty it was there shown that the writer of the pentateuch did not always speak of things and places by the names they bore in the times of which he was writing but by the names best known to his contemporaries god is thus said in the pentateuch to have been preached by the patriarchs under the name of jehovah not because such was the name by which the patriarchs knew him but because this name was the one most reverenced by the jews this point i say must necessarily be noticed for in exodus it is expressly stated that god was not known to the patriarchs by this name and in chapter three verse thirteen it is said that moses desired to know the name of god now, if this name had been already known, it would have been known to Moses. We must therefore draw the conclusions indicated, namely, that the faithful patriarchs did not know this name of God, and that the knowledge of God is bestowed and not commanded by the deity. It is now time to pass on to our second point and show that God through His prophets required from men no other knowledge of Himself than is contained in a knowledge of His justice and charity. that is of attributes which a certain manner of life will enable men to imitate. Jeremiah states this in so many words. Chapter 22, verses 15 and 16 Did not thy father eat and drink, and do judgment and justice? And then it was well with him. He judged the cause of the poor and needy. When it was well with him, was not this to know me, saith the Lord? The words in chapter 9, verse 24 of the same book are equally clear but let him that glorieth glory in this that he understandeth and knoweth me that i am the lord which exercise loving kindness judgment and righteousness in the earth for in these things i delight saith the lord the same doctrine may be gathered from exodus chapter 34 verse 6 where god revealed to moses only those of his attributes which display the divine justice and charity lastly we may call attention to a passage in john which we shall discuss at more length hereafter The Apostle explains the nature of God, inasmuch as no one has beheld Him, through charity only, and concludes that he who possesses charity possesses, and in very truth knows God. We have thus seen that Moses, Jeremiah, and John sum up in a very short compass the knowledge of God needful for all, and that they state it to consist in exactly what we said, namely, that God is supremely just and supremely merciful, in other words, the one perfect pattern of the true life. We may add that scripture nowhere gives an express definition of God, and does not point out any other of his attributes which should be apprehended, save these, nor does it in set terms praise any others. Wherefore, we may draw the general conclusion that an intellectual knowledge of God which takes cognizance of his nature, in so far as it actually is, and which cannot by any manner of living be imitated by mankind, or followed as an example, has no bearing whatever on true rules of conduct on faith or on revealed religion consequently that men may be in complete error on the subject without incurring the charge of sinfulness we need now no longer wonder that god adapted himself to the existing opinions and imaginations of the prophets or that the faithful held different ideas of god as we showed in chapter two or again that the sacred books speak very inaccurately of god attributing to him hands feet eyes ears a mind and motion From one place to another, or that they ascribe to him emotions such as jealousy, mercy, etc., or lastly, that they describe him as a judge in heaven sitting on a royal throne with Christ on his right hand. Such expressions are adapted to the understanding of the multitude, it being the object of the Bible to make men not learned but obedient. In spite of this, the general run of theologians, when they come upon any of these phrases which they cannot rationally harmonize with the divine nature, maintain that they should be interpreted metaphorically, passages that they cannot understand, they say should be interpreted literally. But if every expression of this kind in the Bible is necessarily to be interpreted and understood metaphorically, Scripture must have been written, not for the people and the unlearned masses, but chiefly for accomplished experts and philosophers. If it were indeed a sin to hold piously and simply the ideas about God we have just quoted The prophets ought to have been strictly on their guard against the use of such expressions seeing the weak-mindedness of the people, and ought on the other hand to have set forth first of all duly and clearly those attributes of God which are needful to be understood. This they have nowhere done. We cannot therefore think that opinions taken in themselves without respect to actions are either pious or impious, but must maintain that a man is pious or impious in his beliefs only in so far as he is thereby incited to obedience or derives from them license to sin and rebel if a man by believing what is true becomes rebellious his creed is impious if by believing what is false he becomes obedient his creed is pious for the true knowledge of god comes not by commandment but by divine gift god has required nothing from man but a knowledge of his divine justice and charity and that not as necessary to scientific accuracy but to obedience. End of section 14, read for you by Chiquito Crasto, Birmingham, Alabama.